Welcome to Science in Pictures Presents Science in Podcast, the podcast where we read cool and recent published science and talk about it so you don't have to. This podcast is an extension of a project called Science in Pictures, created by my friend and occasional co-host Rebecca Purchase. The goal of Science in Pictures is largely the same as this podcast, but instead takes peer-reviewed literature and turns it into an easily digestible comic for fun, faster understanding. So here's how this podcast is going to go down. Maybe. We're kind of still tweaking it as we go. Every week, a co-host and I will bring each other uh, a peer-reviewed article to the table, for which the co-host uh, has little to no info about. The meat of this podcast is where we describe everything amazing about said papers to our co-host and have them react to it in real time. Moving forward, each episode will have its own specific theme, but we didn't think to do that for this episode. Uh, so, in this one, we are going to dive into the shark fin trade and unearth a dinosaur with a debilitating bone infection. Without further ado, this podcast. Um, a big old dorsal fin, though. Yeah, that's, I know. That's good. Yeah. Well, I guess we can start talking about articles. Okay. Uh, do you want to go first, or should I? Uh, you go first. Okay. Um... Cool. So I actually was only going to prepare one, but then I read something incredible this morning. So we're going to talk about that real quick. That usually happens with you. <laughs> yes. Um, so I might write about this in the, in the non-comics as well, but I, I might not even change the title. The title is Why Giant Pandas Frequently Roll in Horse Manure. What? Why I, Giant I Pandas. When do pandas and horses ever cross paths? It's never something I would have ever thought about or guessed. But if you think about like the industrialization of China and like how much we've encroached on their habitats, it seems kind of inevitable, right? Yeah. But whenever I think of pandas, I just think of China's breeding program. And most I think of that movie with Jack Black. So I guess, yeah, I guess. So we're talking about wild pandas, right? Yes. Okay. Um. It was kind of weird because it was a team of scientists partnered with, I think it was the Beijing Zoo. But so 10 years ago, they started noticing this wasn't like a one-off. This was dozens of pandas over the course of like 10 years. They were aggressively rubbing themselves in horse manure um, at certain times. It, it actually became so common that they named it HMR, which is horse manure rolling. Oh. Uh, very aptly described. Very um, yeah, so the one pattern they noticed was that it happened in times where the temperature dropped a lot. Um, so like 15 degrees Celsius and under is when they saw it happening the most. Okay. And another thing they noticed was that they seemed to only really care about the horse manure if it was fresh. Okay. Um, otherwise, they just didn't really wait, care wait, about can it. Can I take a guess? Yes. Are they doing this to conserve body temperature based on the diet of the horses? That very well might be it. Uh, I unfortunately couldn't look at the whole article because I have wasn't working, but they might have talked about it where I, it, it actually came okay. from in the horse's diet. That's a good guess. Okay. Um, I don't know, but a good question. Okay, great. Um, so okay. they, what's up? We'll find out another time. Yes, when Sci-Hub is finally giving me access to this article because <laughs> I don't want to pay for it. Anyway, so they took some horse manure and they kind of screened it for different things. And they found two different compounds. Uh, these were called, where is it? They're called caryophylline and caryophylline oxide, uh, both common in fresh horse manure. And they're kind of like a volatile smelling thing. Um, so they dissipate really, really quickly, especially if it's like windy. They're gone in uh, the not fresh horse manure, which is why the pandas don't seem to care about it. And by the way, they cover their bodies in this stuff. Like, I looked up a picture, and I wish I could show you right now. Quicker, what? But Wait. It's, 
They're brown. They turn brown. <laughs> HMR? Yeah. Are you looking it up? Yeah. <laughs> you might have to type it. They really do. Yeah. Why? So it probably has to happen for more than this because I just, I don't know. Maybe it's just like my human bias. I don't think this can be the only reason. But they took these two compounds and they exposed them to uh, laboratory mice. And it actually deactivated one of the cold sensors in, in their body. Well, it, it didn't deactivate it, but it sort of inhibited its ability to process the feeling of cold. So to get back to your question, it doesn't help them actually become warmer, but it makes them feel warmer when it's colder. And that's why they seek it out, or that's at least part of why they seek out um, horse manure. I wonder if that's intentional for that properties or like it smells good and there's also a benefit. I would guess that it would have to be coupled with both because like mammals have, well, it's, it's, it's not just mammals, but for them to evolutionarily seek out horse manure, it would have to be some sort of like tangible thing. They'd have right. to get some sort of reward from it, right? Right. Um, and, oh, that's actually a good question. I read in another article that was talking about this, that they took these two chemicals and just put them on hay. And when it got cold, pandas liked the hay. So is the reward feeling less cold or is the reward like it smelling good, you know? Probably a combination of both. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's all that one. Uh, really. That's weird. Well. <laughs> 10 years in the making. 10 years in the making to find this out or to prove that it happens? So they, I think, recorded it, like, video recorded it pretty early on. But so did this they just, was... I'm assuming they just took horse poop and laid it out with a camera sticking in front of it. And just it started, out. I would guess so. It started as just, like, chance observation. I guess that I would... Like I said, I couldn't read the study, but I would guess that they probably brought it to that point, just like get more data on it. Live Science titled this article, Giant Pandas Have Winter Poop Parties, which is <laughs> not not all that appealing, but... No. All Can right. I just say, though, like with how messed up everything is right now, the fact that people are getting paid to find out why pandas are rubbing themselves in horse manure, that's just like, I don't know. It's kind of heartwarming in a way. <laughs> For lack of a better word, you know? Heartwarming, definitely. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the science behind it for sure. Though I'm sure someone out there would argue um, about getting paid for it. (laughs) 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 I wonder if this was done out of the goodness of someone's interest and own heart. And yeah. Yeah, pandas are very economically uh, valuable in China. So I get what you're saying there. Yeah. All right. All right, so um, enough about panda manure. That was basically that. Um, The article I was going to bring you is called Blood Parasites and Acute Osteomyelitis in a Non-Avian Dinosaur uh, from the Upper Cretaceous Adamantina Formation Baruru, probably butchered that, I'm sorry, uh, Basin, Southeast Brazil. Uh, This was, uh, well, will be published in Cretaceous Research uh, in February of 2021. It will be? Oh, nice. Yes. Good old Sci-Hub when it actually works. Um, So this paper combines some of my very favorite things. Paleobiology, pathology, and parasitology. And I'm really excited about it, so let's just jump right in. Okay. The unfortunate donor of the studied fossil was, and I quote, a senile titanosaur. Just get that image in your head. Senile titanosaur. And we know this? Um, we know this based on a few things that I will circle on back to, but that's a good question. Okay. What's, what's a titanosaur? You have to remind me. I know you provided me a picture. 
but they're definitely one they're called titanosaur for a reason right yes they're one of the biggest ones the biggest. Um, so these dinos were relatively latecomers to the dinosaur clade. They first popped up around 150 million years ago, which is, I'm bad at math, but I think it's like around halfway through their reign. Um, and as by, implied by their name, some titanosaurs were truly massive. As I just said, the largest land animals known to have ever existed. Wow. Uh, yeah. Dreadnoughtus, very, very appropriately named, uh, yeah. possibly the largest of them all, was estimated to span 85 feet head to tail. Um, and weighed up to 66 tons, which is the combined weight of nine and a half male African bush elephants. Wow. <laughs> Put them on a scale, you wouldn't have dreadnoughtus. Wow. Um, like, can you even imagine just being able to walk right up to an animal that big? The fact that they even existed is just, ugh. It's definitely one of those things, you know, when you go to a natural history museum and you see, like, the, um, the like, fiberglass model of a blue whale, Mm -hmm. You look at it and you can't really comprehend its size. So it just doesn't seem real to you. It's just like, oh, that's fine. That's not that big, you know, but like trying to fathom seeing that and watching it move in real life is just, again, incomprehensible sometimes. Absolutely. Even though we know a blue whale exists and people see them probably every single day. But to think about an animal like this existing is just like off the scale. Absolutely. And even more to the point, like blue whales are supported by water. These animals are just having the full weight of yeah. gravity on them and have to move all their blood around a body that big. Yes. It's just, yes. Jesus. Have the, skeletal muscle have the skeletal and muscle structure to contain all their organs in one spot and not just get squished by their own body weight. That's crazy. Um, I actually didn't write about this, but that's another good point as well. Um, we know um, in one way that the closest relatives to, well, the, the relatives to the closest relatives of birds were this type of dinosaur, a Sarischian, yeah. um, because they have the same type of lung, which is to say that they have a system of air sacs that actually penetrates and forms these little cavities in bones as they push through. So that's cool. all happening in their skeleton as well. Oh, okay, cool. That, that, that doesn't actually matter, but um, really cool. Anyway, um... <laughs> Dinosaurs are fucking wild. I know. Every time I get so excited. So it's really easy to view that world they lived in as being completely alien from our own, right? We were just spent like five minutes tangenting on it. Yeah. But we do share some things, like the timeless burden of parasites and disease. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we come across a fossil that is so well-preserved that it gives us an ancient, incredibly detailed look at this timeless relationship. How frequently do you think we find really well-preserved fossils? And what's like what classifies as a really well-preserved fossil? Um, that would probably depend on the person who's actually describing it, but I would say well-preserved would be like, you can see cellular detail. Like so you can see the things that they saw in this study, for instance. It's visual information, but it has, I'm assuming as well, and you'll probably have more insight into this. I'm assuming it's also the like chemical compounds left behind as well, right? Exactly. Okay. Like that one where there's actually a scientist claiming right now that has some pretty great data that she actually might have found fossilized DNA from a dinosaur, cool. um, which we did not think was possible even. But, you know, we found steroids from like 650 million years ago. So that's, cool. that happened. Why can't this? Um, Sorry, what was your question? <laughs> you answered it. Don't worry. Okay, great. <laughs> um, God, tangents. Um, so, Becca, what comes to mind when you hear the term osteomyelitis? Um, I have no idea what that is. And I was about, when I was reading the notes, I was going to look it up, but I figured I would just ask you to explain it to me. 
<laughs> Either way works. Yep. Uh, so osteo is the is part for bone, and myelitis is like there's a lot of de there's a lot of definitions for it. It's like a fatty sheath around something, but osteomyelitis together is inflammation of the bone and or bone marrow. Uh, the bone. Both of these are pretty rare. Bone marrow infection is extremely rare, but either way, it's osteomyelitis if it happens. Okay. So inflammation is not actually caused by a pathogen or invader. It's actually caused by the host's own immune system. Okay. Um, defending immune cells rush en masse to the scene of infection, which in us often presents on the skin as like a swollen, warm, reddish bump, right? We've all had one before. It's just inflammation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Normal. Natural. What's up? We've definitely all had one before. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Maybe not, probably not osteomyelitis. It happens to like two in 10,000 people, yeah. but still. Um, so being a type of inflammation, this is often what osteomyelitis, this is often what osteomyelitis looks like when viewing a sufferer's skin. It can look much worse, more on that later. Um, but being inflammation of the bone in particular, it can look much worse on the inside. So to study this dyno, it's fibula, a lower leg bone. Um was put through a CT scanner, then sliced up into many different sections for viewing under a microscope. Uh, first off, it was oh, this is getting back to your question. It was confirmed to be a much older individual, uh, in part by gauging the development of the sections that were actually healthy. Oh, okay. So in tetrapods, four-legged uh, vertebrates, or, you know, snakes count too because they were descended from that, uh, the building blocks of bones are called osteons, of which there are two main types. They were primary osteons, which are the first ones to replace most of your cartilage as a fetus with bone. That's what happens to us. Yep. And then there's secondary osteons, which replace those primary ones and then younger section, sorry, older secondary ones over time. Um, so this titanosaur had no primary osteons left. And the succession of like secondaries over secondaries oh. happens really slowly. And this yeah. one had three successive generations of secondary. Oh. So it was all... Exactly. It very likely died at an advanced age, which, first of all, how old do we think that is in a titanosaur? I would, I see these animals living at least like 150 plus years in healthy conditions. That's just really? my personal guess. I have nothing to put that on, but they're so big. Yeah. I don't know. And yeah. elephants only die because they stop developing teeth over time. They just grind them down and then they can't chew anymore. Like that's an elephant dying of old age. They starve to death because they can't chew their food. I read There's no somewhere... evidence that that actually happened in titanosaurs. Really? Yeah. That's nuts. I read mm -hmm. somewhere that the rate of someone's heartbeat can be equated to how long they'll live. So, and like, this is species based, not individual based, mm -hmm. but it's like, that's why smaller animals live short periods of time is because they just have a faster heart rate. And then like blue whales, not blue whales, but elephants also have a significantly slower heart rate in respect to us and our lifetimes, which is why they can live really, really long times too. Um, don't know how true that is, but yeah, I don't know. Dinosaurs. Well, I don't know, because I also imagine they have a lot of things that get to them, you know? If we're talking about parasites and things. Oh, yeah. That has a huge effect. And there were, I imagine, lots, there's lots of evidence of lots of different parasites and infections happening across the, um, what do you want to call it? <laughs> across just like dinosaurs' existence, I'm assuming. So I would love to hear 150 years. <laughs> I don't know. It's just. Still old. That's respectable. Yeah. Yeah. 90-year-old titanosaur. Yeah. I like it. Uh, in specific, these were probably a titanosaur called a saltosaur, which were actually like, 
they weren't big for a titanosaur they still were like 45 feet long which for a titanosaur was like not that bad yeah and, like six tons but still that's a big animal that's like lightweight yeah maybe like two or three african bush elephants <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah so now for the pathology because this is just wow so to put it plenty to put it plainly words this bone had a lot wrong with it a lot on the surface, uh, one could observe sections of eroded and very irritated periosteum, which is the tissue surrounding all of your bones. Uh, this was occurring at varying intensities throughout, which indicated multiple uh, sites of infection. It, this bone got infected multiple times, and because of the multiple sites of infection, they could actually gauge the progression of the infection itself, which was really, really cool. Like, this is the first time they've, they, they've been able to do that. Uh, who knew that... Whoever thought that this dinosaur that probably died a very painful death <laughs> would contribute to science as much? Yeah, seriously. No. Oh god, I'm, that's that that's a whole other episode of what happens to your body when you donate it to science. But anyway, <laughs> God, it's so cool. Uh, read Stiff by Mary Roach, it's great. So where was I? Yeah, so the t the periosteum is super inflamed. It's reactive, which means that it's trying to put new bone down in response to an infection. It's going crazy. Yeah. Um, I can tell that in different areas too. Oh yeah, wow. insane. So I guess that's what they mean by fine preservation. Okay. Um, so on the bone itself, uh, the, the, the damage was visible as a filigree pattern, which is the fancy one you see on like a lot of like fancy... I guess tapestry with like the swirly connecting leaves. Oh, really? So yeah. Wait, wait. So it's how was that made? That's just like the degrading of the bone. Yeah. So. Oh, weird. Well, it's half degrading of the bone and half your body trying to fix it. So as the periosteum oh. is reacting to to the the infection, it's trying to either like wall in the infection with healthy bone or just grow healthy bone to replace it. Right. Okay. But it's fighting against the, the infection. Like, it's a battle of attrition. So the filigree pattern is just piecemeal healthy bone trying to be put back in. Oh. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, like you said, poor titanosaur. I know. When your own <laughs> body fights against itself for survival of the fittest. Oh, yeah. yeah. Osteomyelitis sucks, but it uh, doesn't stop there. Um, so the maladies were not limited to the surface. Anywhere the filigree pattern was, the authors also observed the dome-shaped inflammation of the bone itself. The bone expanded and caused cracks or lesions uh, that actually started to extend towards the bone's inner core. Oh, and the layer of tissue, there's actually an inner layer of tissue that separates your, like, solid bone from your spongy bone, and that was irritated, reactive, and eroded as well. Um, so taken together, these symptoms, the tissue irritation, the filigree pattern, and the dome-shaped inflammation are highly indicative of osteomyelitis. Um, the reason that that picture looks so decrepit is because osteomyelitis can also present with necrosis of the tissue around it, so it can actually cause, like, massive skin sores. So in this picture, it shows all these skin sores all over the body. Is that... Does osteomyelitis occur in one area and spread, or does it kind of, like, show up in all different areas since it's your immune system fighting, like, your whole body? That most likely depends on the infection and the uh, type of bacteria. Like there's a lot of different types of bacteria and there's actually an instance about 265 million years ago of one of our ancestors or like ancestor adjacents um, that got osteomyelitis from a predator bite. Ooh, like okay. it survived an attack and then got osteomyelitis in the bone. Oh, okay. So yeah, that one definitely depends. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So yeah, taken together, all of these things uh, were highly indicative of osteomyelitis. Amazingly, the infectious culprits may have fossilized as well. Um, so on, on top of and only on top of the infected areas, one can see the occurrence of tiny organized black dots. Uh, these are indicative of a bacterial infection, but it's unfortunately impossible to tell whether they caused the disease or simply took advantage of an already compromised animal. We just can't know that. Okay, gotcha. Which is just, it's ugh, so crazy. Um, as you can probably tell, this level of preservation is exceptional yeah. to be seen in this much detail. But again, the fun didn't stop there, uh, as told by the title. So in the vascular canals of the solid bone, where blood and nutrients generally mm -hmm. flow through, which, by the way, were enlarged, another symptom of osteomyelitis. Okay. Uh, because the, your body's just trying to shuttle nutrients down there to fix the infection. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so in the vascular canals, there were 64 football-shaped entities. They were all between 100 and 650 micrometers in length, which is less than three hundredths of an inch, uh, similar in form, uh, with one end always being slightly less thick. Okay. Some of these objects had a pair of dark spots that were always in the same size and in the same location mm -hmm. when they were present. So taking all of this into consideration, these shapes were interpreted as microorganisms, Ugh. more than likely fossilized blood parasites. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's do a little quick little, little, uh, recap. Uh, this titanosaur leg bone was preserved in such exquisite detail that its studiers identified not only a severe case of osteomyelitis, but could actually map the infection spread because of how many different areas of bone were invaded. Not only that, but also for the very first time, internal dinosaur parasites have been identified that didn't have to end up in amber or fossilized poop, uh, which is... So these parasites were most likely trypanosomes, uh, a little bit more on that later. Um, when the parasites are more thoroughly investigated, this is going to do a lot uh, to advance our understanding of blood parasites and other tropical disease-causing organisms. <sighs> That's gross. Yeah. Totally. Okay, so do you think we were able to see this based on the technology that we have now? And what type of field will be opened up from this? that either goes back to bones we've collected from, you know, generations ago to the ones we'll collect in the future that just finds all these parasites. I mean, I'm sure a field like that already exists, but now if that- If not already, been... hopefully it's opening up. Huh? If not already, hopefully it's opening oh up. Oh my God, this is crazy. The have um, parasites in this way actively working in other animals' bodies. That's nuts. Oh yeah. And that's a really good question. Um, techno paleontology is in its like second common golden age right now the fossils coming out of like china and mongolia and like this new technology well not new technology a lot of cases existing technology being used for paleontology like ct scanning yeah. that was a hospital tool that we're now using to image fossils right. but yeah so there are probably hundreds of undescribed dinosaurs sitting in museums right now because people just there isn't enough people to look at all these fossils they just get stuffed away for a while you hear every few months a paper pops up about this fossil that was just stuffed in a drawer until someone looked at it and saw something incredible. So I do think uh, this is going to happen a lot more, hopefully. Um, and of course, studies like this are just going to drum up more interest to have more people do it. That's so cool. I wonder, have there been any medications that have, I don't want to say been derived, but like we've been able to solve medical problems problems like diseases based on the ancient reactions in dinosaurs or extinct animals like is there not really 
like solving diseases or anything, but we were able to find out like osteomyelitis in particular, which, which this is actually a good question. This is one of the oldest pathologies in the fossil record, wow. like of anything. Okay. And it pops up in the ancestors to both living reptiles and the ancestors to us. So osteomyelitis probably intrinsically connected to reptiles and mammals. No freaking way. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just Microbes everything. Just control, so great. Control the planet. I mean, like we know that, but it's just yeah. Putting it into perspective for some people, this may not do it for some people. People <laughs> who don't really, you know, care about this level of science, but this is huge, and this connects oh, a lot of dots to like m millions of years ago, which again is unfathomable. So, it's insane. It did pop up a couple questions for me personally. Yeah. Um, one being, so this was a trypanosome parasite, which I tried to look for pathologies, like trypanosomiasis. This is one of those really weird things that like, you can be infected by something without showing symptoms for it. You can just be totally asymptomatic. Could you explain what a trypanosome is? Yes, sorry about that. Um, so trypanosomes are a protozoan, which is a single-celled, they're not technically, most people don't, don't consider them animals, but they're more closely related to animals than they are to like bacteria. Yeah. But they're only made of one cell. Um, a lot of them are parasitic and trypanosomes look like these little footballs with oh. tails. They sort of swim in this like corkscrew pattern. Okay. And they sort of just like attach to surfaces. They love blood, they love tissue, and they sort of just like absorb nutrients through their body walls. Okay. Um, for some reason, I just, I couldn't find a single instance of trypanosomiasis, an actual like malady in reptiles. It doesn't seem to cause any sort of infection. Ooh, why? I don't know. It Well, so possibly two reasons. Reptile veterinary medicine is still in its dark ages, quite frankly. Okay. Like we're still using antibiotics for reptiles that were still being used 20, 30 years ago. And yeah. for, you know, mammals that aren't us, that's just not true. We know a lot of good medications for dogs nowadays that are just totally new, um, which makes sense. It's not a very, it is a very lucrative field, but I guess there's just not too many people actually actively researching stuff like that. Um, my other guess was that it has something to do with body temperature in the same way that like things like the rabies virus can't survive in opossums, mm -hmm. which have slightly lower body temperatures than humans. Yeah. My guess is that it is, has something to do with like a higher ambient body temperature, maybe inhibiting the trypanosome from causing trouble in them. Gotcha. Okay. There was, however, and this was insane. Um, I found an article back in 1969 where, uh, a group of snakes, lizards, and no, this was turtles and a caiman that were experimentally exposed to Trypanosoma brucei, which causes sleeping sickness in humans. Uh, a horrible, possibly 100% lethal disease. It did nothing. They carried it in their blood. Uh, blood showed up as having the parasite. It did nothing in them. So what Meanwhile, happened? Like, yeah, what nothing. happened? No, no, no. So, but what happened in that gap of time? Yeah, never mind. Cut this part out. I don't really know what my question is. <laughs> I don't know what my question is either. It's just like, why is why is it so fundamentally different? I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, I There's know. also... Um, someone out there smarter than us has the answer, but or something close to an answer, but maybe not. Probably. Either way. Um, I also uh, went crazy in, into uh, what is sleeping sickness and some other trypanosome diseases, but what what are we at? We're at like half an hour. Yeah. What am I, nine minutes? All right, let's um, let's table that for something else. <laughs> Again, let's just go to your article. Okay. 
So oh, uh, real quick, there's uh, something called leishmaniasis where trypanosomes get into your facial tissue and cause open oh, sores. No, 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 we can just leishmaniasis. Stop. We can just stop there. That's fine. Circumtropical, every tropical environment in the world. Yes, so you're people, when people say, why would you ever like to live in New England? Because it's so cold. There are very <laughs> valuable reasons as to why you don't want to live in warm places. Yeah. Yeah. They're everywhere. Yeah. Nope. Well, we're going to move from on land big animals to in waters, probably a little bit smaller animals, but, you know, okay. still, still relatively important. But, um, uh, what was I just going to say? I can't remember. That's okay. So the paper I'm referencing is Indo-Pacific Origins of Silky Shark Fins in Major Shark Fin Markets Highlights Supply Chains and Management Bodies Key for Conservation. So this... I just love a 40-word long title. I know. It's so good. Basically, this one's about how silky shark fins, um, obviously from the silky shark, not in texture, but in name, <laughs> right, are more, most likely derived from Indo-Pacific populations rather than Atlantic populations and other areas of the world um, in fin markets, basically. Which um, markets is the study referencing? So this market is studying, is referencing the Hong Kong markets. And okay. that's really significant because Hong Kong is by far, and I mean by far in italics, <laughs> the biggest importer of shark products. And last time, well, we've had this conversation before about the cultural impact behind that. And we're, I'm not going to step on those toes because I, I do believe that there is an element of respect that you need to pay towards certain cultures. However, right. the impact that shark finning has on shark populations is clearly documented in scientific publications. So that's kind of what I'm getting at. So this one was published just on December 8th. So from the time of this recording, just a couple days ago, um, in Conservation Letters, which is from the Journal of Journal of the Society for Conservation Biology. Um, and it was published by some researchers at um, Florida International University. Okay. I hope, right? FIU, Florida International? Yeah. They would have to be. So the silky shark is the second most common shark found in fin markets so what that means is if and this is what they did if you take the fins and do a dna test on them you'll find that silky shark pops up the second most common blue shark being the most common right mm -hmm. so what they wanted to figure out well where are these fin pop like where are these shark populations coming from basically what population do these fins come from and it was kind of known and assumed that the Indo-Pacific Ocean catered to most of the shark finning practices. And that's due, due to a lot of like different regulations and different, I'm going to call them ocean zones for the sake of this conversation. So you have like the Indo-Pacific Ocean, you have the Atlantic Ocean, um, you have the Pacific Ocean, and then kind of in the um, oceanic area, the Indian Ocean type of area, again, around Australia and South mm -hmm. Africa. I hope I said that. I hope that's right. I'm not really too familiar with my ocean names over there. Um, geography is the worst science. It's just boring. Yeah. But I'm sorry, ge geographers. <laughs> I like ge geographers, cartographers. They're all kind of, there's a cool science there. Uh, I like geographers. Geographers, you're on notice. <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> we're gonna have to get a geographer on this podcast to apologize uh, <laughs> yep so basically each of those ocean zones all have different regulations that are all regulated by different groups like international groups for tuna fishing sometimes for shark fishing international trade in um fauna flora and fauna there's so many different things going on they looked specifically at the regulations for tuna fishing because tuna fishing kind of subsequently results in shark fishing um they can kind of fish them the same way, whether it's with nets or with long lines. And if sharks kind of bite the hooks, they're not going to say no. Um, so in some areas, like in the Atlantic area, pretty much catching silky sharks is no-go. There's a lot of bans in place for that. But in some other areas... How well are those bans being enforced? So I'll get to that a little later. Okay. So in other areas, there are still... There's bans and regulations in place. But the level of enforcement obviously can vary a lot. And it's not just enforcing bans per se. It's also enforcing just the restrictions on finning. Um, and that gets into a little bit of a complicated second part, which I won't get into in this conversation because that leads into a bigger conversation on conservation. Um, but I just want to kind of talk about the math that would, or not math, but the kind of process that they used here that um, I think is important because it does, it's not, it's kind of proving something we already assume, but that's a really important level of science because a lot of the stuff we assume about science hasn't been proven yet. Like there's no documentation. So this kind of helps fill those gaps with factual evidence. That's a really good point. Sorry. That's just, yeah. yeah. Do you remember um, Dr. Connor talking about this? He's like, most of the things you assume probably haven't even been studied. I do. Yeah. That was biopopulations. I think he said that. Um, it was too profound for that class. Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> it was. <laughs> and, I, and I spaced out a lot. Anyway, um, so what really they did basically was first they had to establish a baseline genetic population. Um, so that was when they kind of took a lot of genetic information from different databases on um, on silky sharks. And they did use some information on blue sharks as well, just like as a comparative tool, but they took a lot of information on silky sharks from different populations around the globe. So kind of the two big categories they were looking at was Atlantic populations and Indo-Pacific populations. From there, they could kind of dissect it a little farther and they looked at different, um, let me just double check. Yeah, they looked at different DNA sequences to kind of separate groups in those two areas. So not saying they knew their exact locations on a map, but they could tell what kind of groups of sharks were more closely related to one another than, you know, just kind of guessing if they came or, or just saying that they came from this section of the ocean, but the ocean is so big that there's clearly more populations than just one Plus, on a map ocean just looks like ocean so how do you know right all ocean is the same ocean <laughs> um yeah so that was pretty cool um and in the paper and i can send it to you a little later they actually 
uh, spell out the sequences of DNA and like the C, T, A, and Gs and the orders that they're in of what makes them, what the differences are in the primers. So that was pretty cool. cool. I won't get into that because I still need to interpret it a little bit more myself to fully understand it, but it was, it was cool to see. Anyway, the second thing they did was then go to the shark fin trade hubs. And one of the weirdest things that I think, I don't, I knew, I knew this based on my knowledge of just like being involved in ocean related things, but most people probably don't. Going to a fin trade market is like a very normal thing. And there's lots and lots and lots of retail shops that sell shark fins and a variety of shark fins, of course. Like retail shops you'd expect in a normal like shopping mall? Well, if you think of just like a fish market, that's that's kind of oh. what you're going to going to look like, but there's a lot of them, you know? So okay. you go, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but if you were just like, to like, imagine, like a, go ahead. Like a convention? Yeah, kind of. Um, so they were able to test, they were able to test, I think it was. So what they did was over the course of four years, over, a, they sampled fins from over a hundred different markets and at least they were able to look at, they randomly selected 10 vent vendors out of those markets and were able to get a random sample that yield about 20 bags of trimmings. So the trimmings part is kind of important because they're not buying like big fins directly. Um, they'll, you know, fishing markets will clean the fins up to make them more appealing for you know, the markets and for selling. So they took those trimmings, like extra cartilage, extra snips from the fins. Um, they bought those, but they had about 20 total bags worth every time they did this. And they did this. That, Go ahead. Sorry. Um, is that always the case? Or just like, is there any reason for like a normal consumer to buy the whole fin? To buy the whole fin? I mean, like, I'm sure it's kind of the same with any uh, like culinary field. Like I'm sure there's people that buy the whole fin and do the trimmings themselves, like big chefs and things like that. Mm. Um, but they do sell a lot of the fins just in like big bags. Um, and I believe they definitely sell them by weight, if not by the class or the, sorry, by the species of shark. Um, because prices for fins or like for one bowl of shark fin soup can go from anywhere to like $10 from like $10 to $160 a bowl. Jesus Christ. And that sometimes doesn't even use the whole fin. So it's a very expensive commodity. Anyway, so they got a lot of fin samples basically. So they randomly tested them. Um, and again, they found that Silky Shark was um, actually, wait, hold on. They specifically sought out Silky Shark fin trimmings. So from that sample, what they were able to find to kind of jump to the conclusion is that most of the fin samples, if not all of them, had DNA markers only from the Indo-Pacific kind of grouping. None wow. of the markers showed up from the Atlantic side. Now, there's they brought up some good points saying, well, Maybe we just missed those markets, but the fact that they did this across four years, they say it's very unlikely that they missed any sample at all of- Yeah, like to find nothing. Exactly. That's just 
to find nothing. Um, and there's another piece that they mentioned this too, that recently, I think it was 2011, um, there was an illegal import of um, fins from Ecuador that weighed like a couple hundred tons. And wow. yeah, so Hong Kong confiscated those. Um, so there's some, you know, there's obviously gray area with this, like, do no fins come from the Atlantic? Probably not. Um, and even though Ecuador is kind of on the Pacific side, it still says something about fishing in that general area, um, that there are exports going to Hong Kong, not just from the Indo-Pacific Ocean. But the point still stands is that most of the information comes from, or most of the product comes from the Indo-Pacific Ocean. So what does that mean for conservation? Well, this is the part where I definitely have to do a little more diving into but in terms of conservation, they were saying that this is proof that conservation is working more in the Atlantic side of things rather than the Indo-Pacific Ocean side of things. And that's a very vague statement, but I believe that they made this statement to provide the basis of what I said earlier, kind of helping support that those assumptions that we kind of assume we know they're mostly coming from the Indo-Pacific Ocean, um, but we maybe aren't looking quite as closely at the Atlantic Ocean because places around here don't really consume shark fins all that much, right? Mm -hmm. So they brought up a couple of good points in their discussion section. And let me scroll to them. Um, they brought up that they, or I should say, their study highlighted some um, potential for more like better management in terms of regulations of protected sharks. So one of them was increase enforcement efficiency. I think that one kind of goes without saying um, because, you know, the better you can enforce regulations and whether that is having a presence through educational means or just, you know, through fining and, I don't want to say government involvement, but, you know, being held accountable, I should mm -hmm. say. That's kind of, that's usually the first one to pop up, I would say, in arguments about um, conservation of sharks and other endangered species. Um, number two was detect and deter illegal trade in sites listed species, which is also really important because sites does a pretty good job of looking and, you know, proving why certain species need to be managed the way they are, whether they can be traded or not, such and such, and what they're being traded for. Um, Even though it takes them like so much longer to put regulations in place for like marine animals than the terrestrial. It but, does, I know. Yeah. And so sites worked with Hong Kong to, you know, confiscate those fins. So without the site's protocol, that probably wouldn't have happened, you know, and that's the reason why it was there, of course. But one of the third points that they brought up that I find that I found really important, and hopefully I can verbally express my point well, because I've been thinking about it all day since I've read this. Um, the third point was monitor shark landings, where silky sharks are prohibited in the Indo-Pacific in order to assess effectiveness of such measures. And the way I interpret that is it doesn't matter if there's a ban in place or not, or if you're allowed to fish silky sharks or not, you have to have someone go in without 
bias and just take measurements. And that's so important. And I think that should be on the top of the list. And many shark scientists studying stuff like this probably know that. But without that, it's really hard to do comparative analysis to things that are working as their point in the Atlantic. You know, here in the Atlantic, we have the general public population advocating for endangered species, right? So that's that's a big push. That helps a lot, to be, believe it or not. Um, but we also hold people accountable here now um, who break, you know, endangered species laws. We have a lot of different organizations that go out, monitor, help conserve wildlife and nature all across the United States. And um, there's a lot of organi- organizations in other parts of the world and other countries. Um, but we also have a lot of data on that because we're funding that in the Indo-Pacific Ocean. They don't have as much um, kind of monitoring with that. So in order, you know, you can put in as many measures as you want, but you'll have no idea if they're working if no one's there to assess them, you know. Just Um, assume that they happen without actually never looking into it. Exactly. Like you can put as many bans in place as you want, but if and you can say like, oh, we're going to do this to you, you know, if you do this, if we catch you. But and it's not just about proving anything you have to also prove the other side that the banning is justified right so if you're going to put those measures in place you have to have someone collecting data to show that the measures are still relevant and significant does that make sense yes okay bring conservation into the actual modern era huh bring conservation into like the actual modern era and fund it (laughs) i mean And and fund it Fund enforcement, um, which sounds like a terrible term, obviously, nowadays, talking about just enforcement in general, but it's, yeah, it's about holding certain groups accountable um, and not necessarily holding cultures accountable, because again, that is a very sensitive area that I think science needs to be very considerate of you know, hard sciences need to be very considerate of the soft sciences in terms of like cultural significance of these, of um, fishing like this. But yeah, it was, I just really appreciated an article like this that helped like reinforce that base of, well, we kind of know the end of Pacific Ocean is fishing a lot. This kind of shows that the catches absolutely are coming from Indo-Pacific Ocean stocks and we kind of know the regulations in place. Why isn't this working? Like how, like now that we don't really have to think about the Atlantic Ocean so much, how can we kind of hone in on this zone to make a bigger impact? Uh, and then on top of that, make sure that the Atlantic is still holding up to its end of the market. Yeah, that's the other side of things. Is like you can't just turn a blind eye to the Atlantic Ocean because we know it's working now. Right. Because then that just provides a loophole for things to start back up again. Um, I did have a question about that. Yeah. Um, so Hong Kong is obviously like a super important fin trade market, but it's not the only one. Um, Hong did Kong? the paper? Yeah. Well, to say Hong-, Hong Kong is the biggest importer of shark fins by like hundreds and hundreds of tons of shark fins. Okay. So when I use the term market, and I probably should have explained this before, when I use the term market, I'm describing like importations 
to be sold in that vicinity. Um, Hong Kong is also a huge exporter of fins to get their fins processed and then we'll re-import those fins to sell. Oh. So there are other markets for finning, but if we're talking about finning in relation to being used for shark shark fin soup, Hong Kong by far is the only significant one as of right now to be paying attention to. Now that isn't to say other shark finning markets aren't important and shouldn't be regulated. Um, but the demand in Hong Kong is so high that the biggest uh, threat to shark populations mostly comes from them. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. My question essentially boiled down to is that is did the, did the paper mention me like possibility of the Atlantic sharks ending up somewhere else? But I don't oh. know. It sounds like looking at Hong Kong is a pretty good like scale of measure in general, just for looking yeah. at that. I don't know. That's a good point. It, they didn't mention anything about that, but that would be def. From my assumptions, I don't know if we were going to look at shark fishing and maybe subsequent finning in the Atlantic populations, you would have to look internally at, you know, shark fin soup or shark products being sold here in the United States and uh, countries bordering the Atlantic, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's probably most likely where it happens. Um, and but, the U.S. still act does act as like an intermediary, right? Like bringing, we don't like use fins ourselves, but don't we like, what am I trying to say? Bring fins to other countries that are coming from somewhere else? Yeah, there are a lot of regulations being implemented now. Like the U.K. just implemented one. I think Florida implemented another one. Um, and this is something that a lot of people don't know, but there's a lot of regulations in place for shark finning and shark product transport already oh um yeah there's a lot okay and it's how do i say this i'm sure that the fins that are brought through united states base bases are like heavily documented um and follow certain guidelines which allow their transport so the the initiatives right now to what my understanding is is that they're just trying to prevent shark fins period from being transported at all despite proper paperwork but again that brings up cultural and social issues and political relationships with other countries Mm -hmm. so that's where the territory gets a little kind of gray (laughs) um this is a way bigger thing than just, you know, protecting shark populations. Um, yeah, I'm not going to speak to that too much more because I don't want to speculate and falsely mention something. Um, and I hope someone knows more than I do and can explain this better to me. But that's my kind of collective knowledge coming out as an assumption, I should say. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. It was a pretty good. It was a, it, to sum it all up, I guess, so we can kind of put this article to the side. Is that I really liked how it helped prove something we kind of already knew, but um, didn't have a lot of evidence for. I also really appreciate the use of genetic testing and tracking for these products, which you know is seems like a really expensive and it is expensive process, but you know it it provides a lot of. Um, 
gives a lot of results and sometimes very clear results or very uh, distinctive markers, you know? So it's cool. And it's good to know when we're like actually right or wrong about things. Yeah, it is good to know. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes me think of, I read the coolest thing earlier. Um, this is in, I, I'm probably going to talk about jellyfish eventually because they're just amazing. But um, jellies were used to prove a fundamental assumption about swimming in the ocean completely backwards. Wait, say that again? I'm not going to try to repeat that because that was just verbal garbage. Okay. But you know how animals kind of like wiggle and turn when they swim? Like Animals like, in general? Yeah, like fish move side to side. The mammals move like up, up and down. And not just like their back legs, but their whole body is like tossing and turning, right? Yeah. yeah. So... The initial assumption was that they did that to sort of create like turbulence in the back of their body and to help uh, them push forward. But when scientists actually studied jellyfish doing it, they learned that it was actually the opposite. It was they created these little vacuums of water in front of them that actually pulled them through. Oh, that... so animals aren't pushing themselves. They're pulling themselves through the water. So that must be when the jellyfish kind of pulses upwards instead of pushes down. Yeah, it's kind of on its stroke. Oh, weird. But yeah, we're wrong about things a lot. So That's double check. Well, there's, I mean, we're not going to get into jellyfish right now, but you had a <laughs> conversation about how nuts jellyfish one are, but They're just also how the lack of science around jellyfish. Oh my gosh. When did you say that um, our understanding of reproduct the reproductive processes of jellyfish and other um, cnidarians like basically has been the same since the 1800s or something yeah, like, like 200 years ago the same single diagram of how jellyfish is reproduced is still circulating yeah it's just ah, it's frustrating more complicated than that guys it's just know. you know maybe cool. we can do just a whole um science and pictures magazine issue just on jellyfish reproduction don't don't tempt me with that that's oh just yeah I that's would. gonna happen eventually oh great well for I'm definitely gonna bring a space article next time we chat. Okay. Because um, a lot of cool things are happening in space, but also it's gonna be very relevant in February when uh, the Mars, the new. Oh, hold on, I'm blanking. Um, Mars is that planet that's like third from no, the shush or, or fourth from the sun. Shush. <laughs> um, Curiosity when the Curiosity rover no perseverance yeah perseverance that's what it is and now i have to check because i'm gonna perseverance rover i spelled it yeah yeah yeah. okay it is the rover so um in february the perseverance rover is going to be landing on mars to collect a fuck ton of high def excuse me gonna collect a whole lot of high def (laughs) and just very like high tech data on mars and start looking sign for signs for life or past microbial life so i think that you know can really relate to our fossil conversations because can you imagine if we found fossils like that on mars everything would end people just freak out oh my god (laughs) um and i won't say or like that this will happen but it would also be really cool if they start scouted locations for people to go to Mars, which is on their track. They've admitted that. They're like, yes, we're going to put people on Mars. We just need to find where and, you know, learn more information. So 
and also find the initial first volunteers. Oh, are you kidding? If they if they put out to a call a call to action, I'm sure they'd have more people than the military wanting wanting to go to Mars. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I, I don't know. I in in the back of my head, I'm just like, oh, you're gonna die there, and I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. Have you? Uh, we won't get into that. But um, the other cool thing. So we'll end this conversation after this. <laughs> the other thing that they're sending to Mars is a helicopter drone. Huh? They're sending a helicopter drone to Mars. So it's part of the Perseverance rover. Isn't that crazy? Like like one of those diggy little quadcopters. Yeah, but it's oh my God. it's cooler. It looks it's bigger and it looks like a hel well, it has a helicopter propeller. Um, but that's going with them too. It's nuts. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about space for a little bit, especially in February. Okay. All right. I'm excited. I don't know what I'm bringing next week, but uh we'll see. Okay, we'll find out. It's a mystery. Woo! All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.